0: All right, so some of you saw the Facebook post I made. For the next uh, few months, really, we're going to study the Bible as a whole. Um, Each week, my goal is to take one book of the Bible and explain what that book's about. Talk about who who wrote it, when did they write it, who were they writing to, why did they write what they wrote to that people? What are they saying? And so to look at some of those big themes that emerge, because understanding the story of these 66 books helps us better understand our lives. Like today, when I was sitting with Justin, the, the, the weight of this book helps make sense of that. If we don't know this book, if we don't know what God is saying, then, then we're keeping ourselves from God's goodness. We all want to experience God's goodness, I, I think. I, I hope I'm speaking for you in saying that, that we want to experience God's goodness. And God doesn't withhold his goodness from us. Sometimes we just don't look for it in the right places. We look for it in the wrong places. And then we wonder, why is God not being good? And yet in this book, God has communicated to us in a way that we can understand, in a way that he speaks to us continuously, and in a way that helps us make sense of all the stuff that goes on in our lives, the good stuff and the very bad stuff. So tonight, before we jump in, next week we'll start Genesis. But tonight what I want to do is, is to help us un- get, a, get, a, get a big picture view of, of the Bible. Um, how many of you would say that you have a good grasp on the whole biblical story and how all the books flow into that or tell that story? Or how many of you would say that kind of thing would help you? All right, good for you. <laughs> I, aim, I aim by God's grace to do that along with you. So uh, if you got your notes there, I took the hint several, several weeks back. There's no fill in the blanks. It's all right there for you. So, (laughs) we received that too. (laughs) (laughs) So, you see there at the top, the Bible is is the greatest story ever told. Uh, I've mentioned a few times I like stories, I read stories, I I like to read um, uh, fictional stories. I wish I read more fiction. That's kind of a new thing in my life. I read biographies a lot, and stories help us uh, understand. Our lives, our lives are stories that are unfolding. And the Bible makes sense of our lives. And the Bible itself is one story. Now it's got a lot of different pieces and we'll talk about those, but it's one story. It tells us of God who who exists apart from anything or any body, he was there forever. He he doesn't have a beginning or an end. That's why Jesus uses, he says, I'm the alpha and the omega. That means uh, the alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet, the omega is the last letter. He's the beginning and the end. The Bible says he's totally self-sufficient. It tells us how he created all things. He created good and perfect things. It tells us how sin has broken the world. Like if you're you're going through, uh, I can't remember the name of it, but um, the the Bible study curriculum in Sunday school about suffering. It starts with the question, why does suffering exist? And a lot of times when we encounter suffering, we start with, why am I suffering? And it always leads us to a wrong conclusion. If we don't start where the Bible starts, why does suffering exist? Then we can make sense of why I am suffering. But it tells us why sin is in the world and what it does. It tells us how God set into motion this wonderful story of redemption it's accomplished in the person work of Jesus Christ, how he has come to save mankind from sin. It's the story of all stories, and it's told in the 66 books and letters that we call the Holy Bible. This is a helpful quote. The Bible is like a large picture puzzle. Each puzzle piece, each individual book, Has its own unique shape, bears its own unique image, but these individual shapes were designed to fit together into something whole. And the image of the whole provides the context and makes sense of the smaller individual images. So here's what that means Uh, The Old Testament prophet Habakkuk has its own message, it tells the gospel story all by itself. It was written to a particular people in a particular circumstance, and God used Habakkuk in that short little book to deliver his truth. But Habakkuk doesn't make sense apart from what the rest of the Bible says. Habakkuk fits into, has a particular place within what we call the Bible. And so it works both ways. The Bible helps make sense of a book like Habakkuk or Obadiah or Hosea, but also makes sense of Ephesians, 1 Peter. It makes sense of those things, but understanding what each individual book or letter is saying helps us also see the whole better. So as we study through the Bible, we need to be prepared to encounter a number of different things. Uh, First, the Bible has all kinds of different types of literature in it. It has historical literature, so things like Genesis, Exodus, Chronicles, and Kings. Those are books of history. Some of those are narrative stories, which means they're 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 telling a story. Genesis would fit into this. Um, Kings would fit into that. We find a lot of poetry. A lot of Hebrew poetry is in the Bible. Psalms and Proverbs. It's all poetry. Song of Solomon. That's all poetry. And how many of you like poetry? So a few of us like poetry. I am thick-headed when it comes to poetry. I want to like poetry, and I've tried to read it, but I just can't understand it. But one of the things about poetry is it uses imagery and illusion, and, and it has a richness of language. And so sometimes, if we try to read poetry like we tried to read a history book, we'd misread it. And so, if we don't have that understanding that something like the Psalms is written as poetry, then we may misread it if we don't take that into account. We'll, we'll encounter prophecy. Uh, parts of Daniel and Revelation are, are prophetic. I mean, they, they are looking forward into the future to something that hasn't happened yet. Uh, we, we'll encounter things that are called epistles or letters. The New Testament's mainly made up of letters where. You sit down with a book like um, Ecclesiastes and you read the musings of Solomon after he's tried everything in life. It's a bit different than sitting down with Paul where Paul says, quit sinning. Solomon is just going on and on about all the stuff he's tried and how empty it is and Paul's over here speaking more directly. Stop that. And so you gotta know what you're reading in order to make sense of it. And it also includes biographies in the Bible, which is the Gospels. They're telling us the life and story of Jesus Christ. Um, the Bible is full of different cultural settings. It took about 1,600 or so years to write the Bible from beginning to end. It included 40-some different authors, all kinds of different cultures, different time frames, different settings. And understanding the culture affects what's being said. It affects how we interpret what's being said. We need to know to whom it's being said so that we rightly interpret and apply it today. The message of the Bible never changes. But cultures change all the time. And yet God, in his kindness, in his sovereign control, somehow shepherded 40 different men over a 1,600-year span to write the Bible just as he would have it to be written which that in and of itself is incredible. And if you have a Bible in your hand, you're holding a miracle in your hand. But I fear we don't treat it like that. But in all these things, the different types of literature, the different types of culture, the different types of history, there is one message. Above all the pieces, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21, you see it says there that the Holy Spirit carried men along as they wrote the Bible. And so, uh, to use the big fancy phrase, what we believe in is called um, verbal plenary inspiration. Uh, I'll ask you about that in a couple weeks, so get ready. Verbal plenary inspiration. Here's what it means. The Holy Spirit inspired the authors of the Bible so that what's in the Bible is exactly what those men intended to write and what those men intended to write is exactly what the Holy Spirit wanted them to write. The Holy Spirit wasn't puppeting them. He didn't, he didn't overtake their will. But somehow, in a way that we can't see, he commingled with them so that what they wrote was theirs, but it was primarily God's. And it was exactly what God wanted. Um, what are the major pieces of the biblical story? Uh, if you ever wanted to share the Bible story, you can share it in four words. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Those are the four major story movements of the Bible. Starts with God creating. That answers a lot of questions. Where do we come from? We come from God. Who made everything? God. Who owns everything? God. And then very quickly, it moved into the second category, fall. In Genesis chapter 3, if you recall that story, sin enters the world and breaks everything. Everything. It breaks not only our, our, it breaks not only the natural world, because Paul tells us in Romans that the created realm, the natural realm is groaning, right? Hurricanes, tornadoes, storms, that's all the physical groanings of creation because of sin. But sin breaks even our own bodies, our minds, our emotions. So creation, fall, then we have redemption. In Genesis 3, verse 15, redemption is promised, you remember that from uh, the Christmas series, that uh, the, the, the um, God promises to send a Redeemer, and so from Genesis three fifteen all the way through uh, the cross, we have this this uh, working out of God's redemption. God is going to save His people, and He does it in and through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that's the period in which we live. We live in that third phase: creation, fall, redemption. And the Bible tells us there's coming a day when God will bring an end to this life and we will go to be with him either to be judged on the basis of Christ or judged on the basis of ourselves. And if we are not judged on Christ, if we are judged on ourselves, we will be damned to hell. It's the only two options it says. So creation, fall, redemption, restoration is that fourth thing. That God will restore the earth back to, if we, if we kind of track with the Bible story, we start in Eden and we end in Eden. Revelation 21 and 22 shows us this beautiful picture of a restored garden setting where God and man now dwell together. And so God will restore. Any questions on that before I press forward? All right, so what I've done for you over uh, pages two, three, and four, I have typed up a mini summation of each Old Testament book for you. So if you want to know what the book's about, there it is. And I'm going to run through them pretty pretty briefly, but I want us to go through them. But let's, put, let's look at that first quote. God's kingdom unfolds throughout the pages of Scripture from age to age, from epoch to epoch, That just means period of time. It begins with creation and the fall, declines in judgment with the flood and Babel, picks up with the patriarchs, which are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, builds to the nation of Israel in the wilderness, and then climaxes in the occupation of the promised land under Joshua, the judges, and David. But just as soon as God had given David rest from his enemies and established his dynasty, And the temple in Jerusalem was completed. The infidelity of Solomon marked the beginning of Israel's decline into a divided kingdom and then into exile. Aspects of the exile are captured by some of the writing prophets and in books like Lamentations, Esther Daniel, and Ezra Nehemiah, and in the writings. The Hebrew Old Testament concludes with unfulfilled expectations concerning the promised return from exile, causing us to wait for the arrival of the true king of the kingdom of God in the New Testament. So I say this during the Christmas series, but that's why the Bible, that's why the New Testament opens with, here is Jesus Christ. The answer to that question the Old Testament closes with. It closes on this cliffhanger of where is the king? Where is this true promised king that will bring salvation? And the gospel writers pick up and say, well, he's right here. But here's the point from that. Here's why I included that quote. The Old Testament, which I I don't like the phrase Old Testament. I prefer the phrase the First Testament. But the Old Testament tells an incredible story. Now, uh, I won't ask the question, but don't raise your hands. But how many of you knew that the Old Testament tells one single story? And it's a rich story. It's It's a... I mean, it's an, it's, it's an incredible story. And if you like stories, this one's a good one because it's the story of all stories. It tells of God who created. It tells of how he chooses a people in Abraham and he blesses and how the, that his family expands and they fall into slavery in Egypt. And then God miraculously saves them out, brings them out of Egypt And they doubt him. There's hardness of sin in their heart. And so they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, just considering some of the story elements helps me. When you pray, when you pray and you're asking God, I need you to take care of this. What word do we typically attach to that kind of prayer? I need you to take care of this now. I need you to take care of this now. And yet, what we find in the Old Testament story is that with Abraham, God said, I'm promising you a son, FYI, it'll be 25 years. And then with the Israelites, God says, I'm going to bring you out. But oh, by the way, 40 years are going to pass before you get to where you're going. And those kind of elements help us to make sense of our lives. Because what God wasn't doing is God was not saying, I'm not going to answer your prayers. Sometimes when God is not answering our prayers the way that we think, or in the time frame in which we think is appropriate, sometimes we think he's saying no. Or sometimes we think he's not listening. Or sometimes we're wondering, does he even hear? And yet, considering just some of the elements, like how long god uses periods of time in his people's lives is helpful because if god can use 40 years and not be derailed from his plan you know what that means that means i can trust him with the unknown of my life but for 40 years god makes them wander around the desert and if you ever look at a map they just walk in a circle it's not like they wandered in a straight line for 40 years they just wandered in one circle And they wandered in that circle because God knew that that generation was hard-hearted and would not love him. And so he killed them off in the wilderness. They died off. And a new generation has arisen under Joshua and Joshua leads them into the promised land and Joshua says, uh, be strong and of good courage. Remember who God is. Don't be distracted by foolish things like idols. Don't be distracted by foolish things like gold and possessions. Remember God. And so they go into the promised land, and in Joshua is just a story after story of conquest. And then they get into the promised land, and they settle down. You know what they do? They forget God. And then it's just this up and down story that if we're honest, is much like our lives. For some reason, I think we have this delusion that the Christian life is kind of this... this, uh, perpetual upward trajectory that once I say yes to Jesus I'm just kind of on my way without struggle until I get to heaven and so when, our, when that's our expectation when our expectation does not include suffering and sin and struggle then we begin to ask well what's what's gone wrong God why am I suffering instead of letting the Bible provide our expectations So look with me at page two there, Genesis. We'll do an in-depth study of each of these as the weeks go on. But Genesis describes how the world and the first humans were made. The Garden of Eden presents the model of God and man and perfect peace, which we will not see again until the new heavens and the new earth. You ever wonder what heaven's going to be like? It's going to be like Genesis 2, where we walk with God in the cool of the evening where God says, feast on anything in my good creation, where we will enjoy all of God's good creation freely and without sin. It tells us of how the peace that God created is devastated through sin, that God initiates his plan of salvation through Abraham's descendants, and at the end, God's people are bound in slavery in Egypt. That's the story of Genesis. The 50 chapters of it, Sometimes we can get lost in that language. It's old language, but that's the story, and it's a rich story, but it flows right into Exodus, which follows the history of God's people from the death of Joseph in Egypt through the Exodus to the construction of the tabernacle in the wilderness. The tabernacle is a building that symbolizes God's presence with his people. Now, that's that's an incredible point, because what God was saying is that there's going to come a time when I'm going to handle sin once and for all. And he was saying it through this complicated plan of a tent in the desert. Because in the tabernacle, which if you ever looked at the the instructions for the tabernacle, it's quite complicated, a lot of layers of cloth over layers of cloth, a fence around it, different altar pieces. But at its core, What the tabernacle communicated was there was one place where God, holy God and sinful man could meet and commune and be made right. Now in the tabernacle physically, it was in the the innermost part, which is called the holy of holies. And so God gives instructions how to build the tabernacle. We see it built and we see that it symbolizes God's presence with his people. It was put in the center of, At this point, there's the 12 tribes. They all camped in a big circle, kind of, and then right in the middle was the tabernacle. God was to be the central point of the life of Israel. We also see that God uses Moses to deliver the law and deliver his people. Leviticus, probably the most unread book of the Bible these days, it presents um, a digestion, if you will, of God's law how his people were to act and to live. It highlights the problem of how sinful humans approach a holy God. And so here's kind of the the big takeaway from Leviticus, what we should take away. We're not under the, the, the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament any longer, but the main point of Leviticus for you and I and why we should invest ourselves into Leviticus is because God is particular about his holiness. God cares about his holiness. And for some reason, for some reason that has lost its place in modern theology, modern Christian practice. We don't think about God for some reason as being holy and set apart. And one of the ways I know that is just because I can look at culture. Think about how, how you think about God in your life. Do you think about him as this holy set apart being that you are utterly separated from if it were not for Jesus Christ. But Leviticus, with all of its ceremonial language, with all of its rules and regulations, God gave that specificity because he is concerned, because he cares about his holiness. Numbers tells us about how the people uh, travel to the promised land It describes several instances of the people's unfaithfulness in the wilderness. And it talks about God preserving them. That even though they were unfaithful, even though they rejected God, even though they said, "Uh, we had it better in Egypt, can we not just go back to Egypt? They were whining and complaining. Even though that's what they were doing Numbers. the book of Numbers highlights God's faithfulness to preserve them even in the midst of their sin. Deuteronomy, uh, it's called Deuteronomy because of the, uh, what the word means. It means a second giving of the law. So when they move into the wilderness, God gives them the law. In Exodus chapter uh, 18 through 21, we see they're camped around Mount Sinai and God gives them the law. And then 40 years later, a new generation has emerged and so God says, give them the law again. Remind them. So that's why you can find a lot of similar language between Exodus and Deuteronomy. It's a second giving of the law. Deutero means second, namash means law, second law. And so as they're about to go into the promised land, we read Moses giving them a final charge. He says, be holy He also says there's a greater one coming. Be on the lookout for him, pointing out to Jesus, even though he didn't know who Jesus was. He knew God's promised redeemer was coming. And so he says, don't enter into this promised land and lose sight of all that. Don't be foolish enough to be distracted. Don't let something take the place of God in your life, which if we remember the law is the second commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. So it's a reminder. Joshua describes the conquest of the promised land, the appointment of leaders among the 12 tribes where they are scattered about the promised land. Judges, after Joshua's leadership, uh, we move into the period of the judges. And Judges is a book about its name, Judges. There was no king yet. There was no uh, ruler like Moses and Joshua And so there were, at different points in Israel's history, 14 judges that arose that spoke for God to the people. And if you've ever read Judges, it's a tragic story because the people continuously revert to lawlessness. They continuously go back to their sin. They continuously neglect God's goodness and his law. Even though these judges are rising up and saying, don't do that, but something else that we see in the book of Judges is that the judges themselves are often sometimes wicked. Samson is a judge. If you ever wonder where Samson fits in the Bible, he shows up in Judges. He is one of the 14 judges. And yet we see Samson falling into sin. God restores him for a time at the end of his life, but he falls into sin. And the fitting phrase there you see from Judges 21-25 The writer says, in those days Israel had no king, and everyone did as he saw fit, or everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Well, we read about Ruth, it's just a little story kind of tucked in, kind of seems to come out of nowhere, but it functions as this announcement. There's a lot that can be said about Ruth, and we'll say a lot about it. Ruth, we see a picture of Christ in Ruth that we don't see anywhere else. But Ruth, in its function in the Bible, is to say, "Um, hello, the king is on his way. Because you know who Ruth is? Ruth is the grandmother of David. And so God is saying, I'm gonna restore this woman who comes from outside of the promised land, because she was from Moab. I'm gonna bring her in, I'm gonna restore her. I'm gonna give her not just a place among my people, I'm gonna give her an honored place. Through her is gonna come the king. We move into First and Second Samuel, and in the Hebrew Bible, it's one book. We've divided it into two books, but it's just, it's one book. It's about the last judge, Samuel. It's about the false start, King Saul. And it's about the true king, David. And it's an incredible story. There are some incredible stories there's some just compelling details in the book of Samuel. The, the, the story of the ark in Samuel is quite startling. That The Philistines come and take the ark. They lose the ark. Israel loses the ark. And the Philistines say, well, it's a special thing. We'll put it up in the temple of our God, Dagon, right in front of the statue. And so it says they come in the next day and Dagon's laying down on his face. They said, well, that must have been an accident, so they stand it back up, and the next day he's back down on his face. Well, finally, God just shatters the statue, and the Philistines say, all right, get this out. We don't need this in our land. And so Israel comes and gets it. And if you know anything about the ark, God was very particular about the ark, don't touch it, don't defile it. And so what do the Israelites do? They have a party and they open it. And it says that God killed 70,000 Israelites on the day that they opened it, because of their sin. It's quite a book. We move to first and second kings. Kings and chronicles are histories. Kings of the, 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 the focus is on uh, David's son Solomon followed by the fall of both Solomon and his sons. We read about the kingdom of Israel being torn into two. Israel only had three kings. Saul, David, Solomon, and then it tore into two. Israel became the northern kingdom. Judah became the southern kingdom. And kings, the book of Kings details that. Chronicles presents kind of a, a summation of everything from Adam to the beginning of the exile. And if you don't know what the exile is, during this period, after the kingdom is torn into two, after Solomon dies and under his sons, the kingdom divides, God sends Babylon and Assyria to come in and take Israel away to punish them for their sin. And so they're exiled out of Israel, out of the promised land. God says, stay in the promised land. And if you ever read Deuteronomy chapter 30, he says, I'm setting before you today life and death. This is in that second giving of the law, of the reminder. He says, I'm putting before you. It's not way far off. It's actually right in your mouth. It's right in your heart so that you can do it. So do it. Choose life that it might go well with you so that you might live long in the land. And then they choose death. And what happens? They lose the promised land. God takes it away. The Bible actually says, I think it's in Isaiah, that it uses, now Isaiah is a prophet. He's using figurative language, so not literal. But it says that God ran a flag up the pole and whistled for Babylon to come. Come get them, boys. And so God strips the promised land from the people of Israel because they neglect his law. And Kings and Chronicles tell that story. Ezra and Nehemiah, again, these are kind of one book. We break them into two. Ezra describes the return of the Jews from Babylon, and they begin to rebuild the temple. And then a few years later comes Nehemiah, and he continues to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. That's the story in Nehemiah 8, if you're familiar, where they rediscover the law. They lost it in Babylon. They forgot it. That's why Jeremiah has to remind them in Jeremiah 31, don't forget God has a plan for you, and it's a good plan. You see that verse, Jeremiah 31, verse 11, I think it is? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. 29.11, there it is. Cindy's got me. That promise was given because they were in a foreign land without the word of God, without the ability to worship God's people, and they had forgotten. And so Jeremiah comes along and says, don't forget. And so they get back to the land. They go back into the temple, and they find the law after having not had it for 70-plus years. And in Nehemiah 8, they read the law, and it says they read it from sunup to midday, and they They were overwhelmed. I'm planning one of those. Get ready, all day reading. All right. (laughs) Thank you. Do we have to stand? You do the whole time. (laughs) The whole time. Somebody knows the story. That's what Ezra and Nehemiah talk about, and we get to Esther. It's the last book of history. It's the story of God's deliverance of the Jewish community while they're exiled. They're in Babylon. They're under um, King Ahasuerus is his name, or Xerxes, same guy. And Esther tells this dramatic story of how God uses this woman, this woman of courage to save the people. So those are the books of history. And if you're wondering, uh, the Old Testament as we have it is not in chronological order. It's in thematic order. It's arranged by theme not by date. So a lot of those books are not time arranged in the Bible. For instance, Job, anybody know when Job lived? Most likely? And jo- Job comes just before Psalms in our Bible. But Job was most likely a contemporary of Abraham. So it's not chronological. You can get a chronological Bible, and this can be helpful. But the reason ours is arranged the way it is is so that these great themes come out. So we see the themes of the Bible. So it includes the histories. It includes what we call the writings. Job, as I just mentioned, the story uh, about a righteous man who was tried by God. That's important that we note that. That Job suffered because of God. In the very beginning, Satan comes to God, and God says, have you considered Job? And it's a story about suffering. If you had read your notes, somebody would have had the answer there. Just a little cheat note. The Psalms, poetic prayers of praise. We read about confession. We read about laments unto God. About half of them appear to be written by David. The other half are written by various other people. Solomon wrote some. A group called the Sons of Korah wrote some. But another, a, a pastor said, and I find it very helpful, that it's in the Psalms that we learn the language of prayer. If you ever struggle with what to pray or how to pray, or what to say when you don't know what to pray or don't want to pray... Psalms are an excellent place to go because it's the language of praise and lament. It's the language of struggle. It's where people get real with God and they ask those questions. God, why did this happen? God, keep me from sin. God, keep those sinners from me. Proverbs is also part of the writings. It presents the wisdom of Solomon and others concerning practical life issues. Ecclesiastes, most likely written by Solomon, we don't know for sure, he calls himself the preacher, and Ecclesiastes details this man who tried everything in life, and I mean everything, he tried everything, and most likely it was Solomon, and it talks about the riches of Solomon, there was nothing Solomon couldn't have that he wanted. And at the end of Ecclesiastes, as the old man tried all that the world had to offer, At the end of Ecclesiastes, he says, uh, all has been heard, all has been tried. He says the the chief end of man or the the main end of our lives is to fear God and keep his commandments. If you want to know what life's about, take it from somebody who tried everything and found everything wanting. He said it's about fearing God and following his rules. He says that's the path to life. We read about Song of Solomon. Song of uh, Song of Songs is a collection of love songs between a bridegroom and his bride, and it emphasizes the importance of romance and love and desire in relationships, specifically in the marriage relationship. Any questions on those? All right, I'll keep at it. Uh, the Old Testament also includes prophets. I've said this a few times, the first five are called major prophets because they're the long ones. The other 12 are called minor because they're short. Not because anything is less important, it's just they're shorter. So if you look at Isaiah, that's a really long book of the Bible. If you look at uh, Habakkuk, it's much shorter. But the message is no less important. Isaiah uh, was a prophet in the southern kingdom of Judah. So the, the the kingdom has split. So we're David, Solomon, and now we're in Isaiah's time. So he's in Judah. The first 39 chapters are composed of prophecies that lead up to the captivity. Now, think about that. God is telling them, by the way, this is coming. He's telling them that it's coming. And then chapters 40 through 66 during the exile are pointing towards God's going to restore. Don't lose hope. God's going to restore. Jeremiah uttered his prophecies in Jerusalem during the years that it was besieged. That ended somewhere around 586. Now, if you know anything about the history of of Jerusalem, Babylon came and and laid siege to Jerusalem for several years. And it was a terrible, terrible event inside the city. And it was so bad, Jeremiah wrote a book of the Bible about it called Lamentations. Because it got so bad, it said the people were even feasting on the dead bodies. They didn't have any food. And he is lamenting to God that this has happened because of the people's sin. In Ezekiel, Ezekiel went to Babylon... About the same time Jeremiah was in Jerusalem, he'd been taken either before or as the siege was going on. He was trained as a priest and he prophesied against Judah. He was saying, you're in sin too. Israel was exiled first and then Judah was exiled. And we read about Daniel. Daniel's part prophecy, part history. And it tells of this Jewish captive Daniel and his life as it unfolds in Babylon. He's carted off as a young man from his home, and he basically grows up and dies in exile. Which, there again, just that detail has something to say about how we understand how God works. That Daniel, if you know anything about the story of Daniel, Daniel's one of the most godly men that emerged, godly characters in the Bible. And yet Daniel lived his life exiled. Daniel lived his life having been taken from his homeland, taken to a place he didn't want to be, had to adopt new, had to to get used to a new culture, a new way of life. He was persecuted and yet he emerges as one of the most faithful characters in the Bible. Uh, The remaining 12 prophets are, like I said, these minor prophets Hosea was in Israel Joel uh, was in Judah Amos was predicting the judgment restoration of both Obadiah uh, prophesied against Judah's neighbor Edom this nation of Edom he's talking about don't, don't, don't come in here to Judah these are God's people you probably know the story of Jonah God commissions Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach repentance and Jonah doesn't initially he's swallowed by the fish and then he goes Micah as a contemporary of Isaiah and Hosea spoke to both concerning judgment and deliverance Nahum comes about a hundred years after Jonah and has the same job go to Nineveh tell them to repent because they forgot Habakkuk's reminding God's people living in a time of evil That God's judgment is certain. They can put their trust in his promise. It's a timely message for us. You're living in a time of evil. It doesn't seem like God is present. It seems like evil is winning, that culture is winning, that people aren't regarding God. And here comes Habakkuk saying, don't be deceived. We hear Paul saying the same thing in Galatians 6. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Evil does not go unpunished with God. Zephaniah promised judgment would come and he called him to repent. And these last three, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, they're all contemporaries of Ezra and Nehemiah. While Ezra and Nehemiah are leading the people to rebuild and restore Jerusalem, along come these these prophets that give the message of God. So any questions? Any questions? On those thirty-nine books of the Old Testament. Yes, sir. And Ezra talks about the uh rebuilding of the temple. Yep. The second rebuilding? Um that would be the first rebuilding of the temple. <clears throat> is there a book that describes the third rebuilding? Is it is there a third? That's a that's a good question. I, yeah, I'm. I have to get back to you on that. I don't know off the top of my head. Um. Any other questions? I have yes. 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 Hmm. Yeah, some different translations will 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 bring out certain aspects better than others. Absolutely. All right. Um, I hope those are helpful for you in getting a. a just kind of a grasp of what's the message of each of these books and how do they all fit together and like I said we'll look at them in depth in the weeks to come second thing I want to make in these concluding few minutes is that the Old Testament displays God's passion for his holiness it's not just in Leviticus it's the whole of the Old Testament That's, that's one of the major themes that emerge that God cares about his holiness we find Jesus using that covenant language in Matthew 26 when he establishes uh, the Lord's Supper, he says it's a new covenant in my blood. And a covenant relationship is a, a promise from God to man. See, we can make promises to each other, but only God makes a covenant. And God, when God makes a covenant, God does not break his covenant. Um, covenant's is a language of relationship. God uses his covenant promises to draw near to his people, to draw his people into a committed relationship with him. See, so here's, here's where we see the richness of covenant in the story of the Old Testament. God promises this people, I'm going to save you. And what do they do? They reject him over and over and over again. And he even uses, I didn't hit it in the, in the description, it's there, but he even uses the prophet Hosea to make this point. He tells Hosea, go and take a wife of who's a prostitute and have children with her and name them certain things name the first one no mercy and if you remember i i, I think i i brought it out in um, uh, the last christmas sermon on first peter chapter two but god tells hosea and gomer his wife he says name that first child no mercy and in a few chapters later in hosea three he says i'm going to have mercy on no mercy I'm, there's coming a time when you people who have rejected me and who have walked away from me and who have despised me and who have rejected my law, there's going to come a time when I'm going to shed all kinds of undeserved mercy on you. And so God cares about his covenant. God does not break his covenant. And it's in the context of committed relationships that we find God's passion for holiness expressed he was passionate for his people to live set apart unto him which why which is why sin is such a big deal sin is not just sin it's not just an offense against god it's an offense against a god with whom i have a deep relationship he's not just set apart he's not this set apart strange out there somewhere kind of god he's a very personal relational god And when I sin against him, it's a very grievous, deep offense. And the Old Testament brings that out in a number of ways. It expresses God's anger against sin, how it's it's an offense against his character, that he is not indifferent to sin. The Old Testament teaches that all people are sinners. It's not just in Romans 3. It's all throughout the Old Testament, that all people are sinners. I'm going to check page 5 now. And this is where we see the importance of the word atonement come into play. You've heard that word atonement. It means taking two parties that are that are opposed to each other and helping them be at one. Somebody's described that atonement means at one-ment. That for us to be right with God, there has to be some form of atonement which is why we see sacrifice all throughout the Old Testament. Day in and day out, the Israelites went to the tabernacle and then to the temple to make sacrifices, to atone for their sin. And you know why one of the reasons they had to go every single day? A, because they sinned every single day. But B, it was a reminder, something better has to come along. This animal sacrifice is only getting me to tomorrow. Something better has to come. Something more is needed. Do you know why the high priest had to go into the Holy of Holies every single year to atone for the nation? Because something more was needed. And that's why the Old Testament anticipates with such richness the coming of Jesus Christ. Because the Old Testament not only anticipates a better sacrifice, it anticipates a person. It anticipates the Messiah. And so along with the Old Testament's emphasis on the need for something more and the person that's coming and the judgment of God and and the reality of sin, along with all of that, the Old Testament is rich with hope. In Exodus 34, God says that he will not leave sin unpunished. And yet we find God saying, I'm going to deal with sin in a way that leaves us righteous. We can't do it on our own. Animal sacrifices won't get it done. And the Old Testament even says that. Psalm 51, 17, David says, the sacrifices of bulls and goats you do not desire. He says, what you desire is the sacrifice of a broken and humbled heart. If all we do, you see, the Israelites got really good at taking sacrifices to the temple every day. They they worked it into their schedule. It became part of who they were, but their hearts were hard. God says you can sacrifice goats all day long, and if your heart's not in it, it means nothing. Translate that to today. You can go to church all you want. You can pray all you want. You can own as many Bibles as you want. If your heart is not right before the Lord, it means nothing. And so we read in Isaiah 53 about a promise that there was one coming who would suffer for the sake of the people of God. If you have your Bible, flip open to Isaiah. This is where we'll end. It's a wonderful, a wonderful picture. Isaiah 53, I'm sorry. Isaiah 53, verse 4, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced. For our transgressions, was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray; we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord laid on him—that is Jesus Christ—the iniquity of us all. There's a, there's a hymn that states this, and it's my favorite hymn. Come, thou fountain. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Comes right out of Isaiah. Look at verse 10. It says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Flip back to 52, verse 13. It says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Your translation should have a footnote that can also read flourish. Behold, my servant shall flourish. What Isaiah is saying there is the one who's coming will, will bring flourishing. That's, a, that's an ethical word for good life. He's saying that the coming one will will bring flourishing. And then what do we read in Isaiah 53 verse 10? The will of the Lord shall flourish or shall prosper in his hand. So what Isaiah is saying is, don't miss all the imagery. Don't miss all the richness of what we see in the Old Testament, that there is one coming who will suffer by the will of God and in his suffering, he will cause the people of God to flourish. He will cause them to live a good life because of and in and through the gospel. To the Old Testament, it's a good book. It's a rich story. And I pray over the next few weeks, as we move through it, that God will bless our study, that God will bless his word and cause it to take deep roots in our lives. I hope tonight that God has has wet our appetite for it. We would long after it. Uh, Peter talks about longing for the pure spiritual milk that is the Word of God, that we might taste and see that the Lord is good. Any uh, thoughts or questions before I close? Yeah. And that the fact that we have hardship in our life is nothing new either. <laughs> Indeed. Well, let me pray for us and we'll we'll dismiss. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the story that the Bible tells. It's a story of who you are and what you've done and how you have chosen to relate to your people through the gospel. How you've chosen to save your people through the life and death and burial of The resurrection of your son Jesus Christ.